It's time to heed the call of the wild and seek the higher calling. Higher Calling Gulf Coast is the inspirational voice of Gulf Coast fishing and conservation. Hosted by award-winning wildlife journalist, conservationist, and flounder revolutionary, Chester Moore. Be ready for a relentless pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of fishing adventure. Welcome to Higher Calling Gulf Coast. This is Chester Moore. We've been covering the freeze event that struck the Gulf Coast and a whole lot more than that. But our domain here is the Gulf Coast from uh, Texas over to Cuba, technically. And uh, we have Aaron Adams. He is the Director of Science and Conservation with the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Welcome to Higher Calling Gulf Coast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a very interesting time. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, uh, I was talking with you about um, the situation in terms of, uh, you know, tropical, more tropical type fish. And of course, tarpon being the one that we uh, talked about first because there were a presence of dead tarpon. But we know that the threshold, people have been talking about the threshold of death for speckled trout being 44 degrees. Uh, what's the threshold of death for a tarpon? Um, the minimum, what we call the minimum lethal temperature is nine degrees Celsius, which is about 48 or 49 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. Wow. But it's not just about that lower lethal, lethal limit. It's about the rate of change. Okay. So if a tarpon, say, is acclimated to water that's, uh, let's say, 68 degrees, and then suddenly, um, say, overnight, that water temperature drops to 58 or 55, that big change even though it's above the lethal, lower lethal limit, um, can also be fatal. Wow, that's very, very fascinating. What about snook? You know offhand what about snook? Very similar uh, temperature, um, lower lethal limit for temperature, mm -hmm. as, as with tarpon. Um, back in 2010, uh, Florida had a, a severe freeze event that killed, wow, just tens of thousands of fish. And uh, tarpon and snook um, were very high on the list. Uh, so they have very similar temperature requirements. I mean, their center, geographic center of distribution for both species is, is in the Caribbean. Yeah. So all of this is on the northern tier, certainly ones in parts of the middle coast of Texas would be on like the northern tier of their range. Correct. You know, and remember too, when we think of tarpon, uh, especially, and fishing for them, we're mostly thinking of adults. Uh, and we know from a lot of tagging and tracking that they seasonally migrate. Um, and of course, the tarpon anglers uh, listening know that the peak season is during the uh, summer, late summer, you know, into, into early fall. So those, a lot of those adults are out of the region by now, but the juveniles uh, that are in you know, some of the wetlands and creeks and whatnot, they're kind of stuck there. They're not migrating yet. And so when there's little cold temperatures come, um, they've got nowhere to hide. And that's really interesting in terms of, uh, you know, thinking about that, because when you think of tarpon, most of the ones caught in Texas are bigger tarpon caught in that peak time of year and people are pursuing them out there. Uh, but these smaller tarpon in these areas, we're even getting a few reports of in river systems, you know, north of the bays where there's some tarpon that have been found dead and, and things like that. So once again, a mysterious fish with a life cycle that's maybe not as familiar to a lot of anglers, especially maybe in Texas is a redfish or a speckled trout. Right. Uh, tarpon are, are unique in, in many ways, um, one of which the uh, wide range of habitats 
they depend on uh, through their life cycle. So mm-hmm. we're used to fishing for them, maybe adults, say, along the coastlines or maybe even in the estuaries. Um, but when they spawn, uh, they go offshore to spawn in large groups. Um, we're kind of closing in on a couple of likely spawning spots. For example, it looks like one of the spawning spots might be out uh, near the deep water horizon still site. Oh boy. And what, yeah. And so what they do is um, they go off in groups and they do what's called broadcast spawning uh, out in open ocean. The males and females eject eggs and sperm out into the in water column and the fertilization is external. So it's not like, say, a largemouth bass you know, where they dig a nest protect the eggs and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, once the spawning happens, you know, the adults are gone. Um, they head back inshore or, or continue on their migration elsewhere. And then those eggs hatch after about a day and then spend uh, three to maybe four weeks uh, as plankton out in the open ocean. And when they're that small, they look nothing like a tarpon. They look like a, like a, you know, a clear eel-like hmm. creature that's maybe an inch and a half long. And they make their way in inshore, and they're searching out a backwater wetland habitat. So uh, if you've ever gone trumping around in a mangrove swamp or a, uh, a salt marsh, places that are mucky, uh, stinky, and full of mosquitoes are perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they're that small, um, they actually, the tarpon, the larvae, they change shape, they metamorphose into miniature versions of what we think of as tarpon. Mm-hmm. And when they're that young, um, they don't really don't need any oxygen in the water. They can get all of their oxygen by gulping air at the surface because mm-hmm. they have a modified air bladder. Yes. And so that's great for the, the, the juveniles because it means that larger fish, jacks or ladyfish or, or snook or other big tarpon, uh, can't get back into those places. There's not enough oxygen in the water. Um, so it gives them some pretty good protection. Um, their biggest predators are, are, are wading birds. We sometimes see... Uh, Blue herons and, and egrets um, chasing, you know, eating small tarpon in the backcountry areas. And so that makes them especially susceptible to these cold events. But what also is very interesting is, you know, let's say adult tarpon uh, spawns out near the deep water horizon site, and the ocean currents might take some of those larvae um, down towards, say, Tampa Bay or Charlotte Harbor in, in Florida. But some of those currents might also take those larvae uh, up towards the northern Gulf. Uh, we know that there's also some spawning that uh, occurs off of Veracruz, Mexico. Mm-hmm. And with the current, it's likely uh, some of those larvae are swept up towards the Texas coast. Okay. Right, so there's this large regional connectivity. And you know, that's been going on forever. But many decades ago, um, when we had what I'd call more normal winters, uh, the water temperatures in a lot of the northern Gulf um, especially in the shallows, would consistently get down to that 50 degrees or below. Mm-hmm. And so you'd get juvenile tarpon in the summer, but then when winter came, they couldn't survive the winters. But, you know, over the uh, past uh, decade or two, we've had more and more mild winters. And so I think some of the, say, 36-inch uh, tarpon people are seeing dead, they're probably about three years old. Okay. And they were able to survive the past few winters because it didn't get that cold. Gotcha. But then when we get these things like um, like this polar vortex, which we'll probably see more of uh, going forward, um, those northern fish really get hit hard. That's really interesting. And um, you think about uh, the, the great silver king, you know, and wow, we're starting to see tarpon in our part of the coast more and all these kind of things. And you have these weather conditions. No, no, not all fisheries issues are related to 
what we catch? I mean, the climate has such a big role in a lot of this. Yeah, the climate is a huge factor. And underlying that is uh, are the habitats and the water quality that the fish depend on. Mm-hmm. So if we have a, 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 a coastal ecosystem that is intact, where the habitats are all intact, and you have a lot of different habitats like rivers and creeks and wetlands and seagrass beds and beaches, and the fish can move among them, and you've got good water quality in those habitats, then those ecosystems that are healthy are much more uh, capable of dealing with um, all the changes that are uh, associated with, whether it's sea level rise or mm-hmm. water temperature differences, that type of thing. So the fact that you know, in broad brushes in broad brush strokes, we've altered a lot of our coastal habitats uh, means that you know a lot of um, the fish that depend on those habitats are going to probably have a tougher time with climate change than they would if we had intact habitats there for them. Um, so, for example, in, in Texas, as you and your listeners know, um, Texas has already lost a lot of their freshwater flow to the to the Gulf of Mexico. For sure. And, and that definitely um, impacts juvenile tarpon and other species as well, which a lot of your biologists up there have documented. In Florida, um, the water drawdown to the aquifer has been so severe that a lot of the springs that used to, um, freshwater springs that used to run, mm-hmm don't run so much anymore. And those springs are typically right around 72 degrees Fahrenheit, <coughs> Fahrenheit excuse me, all the time. And so they provided a, a temperature refuge during cold spells in the, in the past uh, that's not there anymore uh, for tarpon or snook or, or animals like manatees. Now looking, I've been calling the X factor of this freeze event something no one's talking about is damage to habitat, not just immediate fish kills, but... Um, what are what could some of the damage be to like for example black mangrove, uh, shoal grass, turtle grass, a lot of these seagrasses and things that are along that middle and lower Texas coast? Well, black mangroves have been uh, migrating or moving their geographic range northward uh, mm-hmm. for quite some time again due to climate change, and they'll uh, experience uh, some damage if if it if the cold lasted long enough, if it's severe enough, they would actually uh, suffer mortality. Um, which you know, the black mangroves are very good at um, building up sediment in wetlands, which is a great way to combat mm-hmm. um, sea level rise. The uh, species that have always been there, like the Spartina and other marsh grasses, um, you know, they're they're semi dormant you know, during this time of year, so they may have some damage, but I wouldn't expect it to, to see a, a severe amount of that. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of other species, um, with this uh, extensive uh, damage, you know, we'd expect a, a couple of year, uh, kind of slow recovery over time. Yeah. You know, and that goes into your classes of fish being productive and all these kind of things. We've seen that with other things in the Texas coast, like uh, spotted sea trout and, you know, things like that. Um, huge turtle kill event with this, um, you know, we know that there were around 8,000 turtles stunned and captured, and I've heard of up to 50% mortality rates on some of those. A lot of them put back. Um, it was it was it was gigantic. So it was interesting because a lot of those a lot of those turtles were further into the bays than they might normally be this time of year. And I think that was a problem, and uh, just a lot of things happening when this event comes in 
along the ecosystem here. I want to circle back real quick on the snook, uh, the life cycle of, of tarpon you explained, but um, on the snook end of things, what goes into their spawning process? Um, it's very similar to tarpon, but at a, at a smaller spatial scale. Um, so rather than going offshore, um, snook typically spawn around inlets, you know, passes, mm-hmm. maybe along the beach. Uh, they need the, the salinity or the salt content of the water to be about 24 or above. Mm-hmm. So if, if you have a correct salinity level within an estuary, say you haven't had rain for a long time, um, they will spawn inside the estuary. They typically spawn, um, it's a summer spawning season typically, mm-hmm. uh, often um, on a dropping tide, of the extent, extent that you have tides. I know a lot of Texas doesn't have much tide. Not a whole lot. Uh, and that, and that uh, carries the larvae um, a bit offshore. So the first place that we see a uh, snook larvae in Florida, for example, um, is, is relatively close to beaches uh, near the inlets where they spawn. Mm-hmm. And then over a two- to three-week period, those larvae work their way up into the estuaries, and they're looking for similar backcountry habitats as juvenile tarpon, but they typically don't go quite as far up into the backcountry. Mm-hmm. So the places where those backcountry creeks end, or even where uh, you might have some salt marsh ponds that are isolated during um, dry periods and then connected during wet periods, that's where you'll find juvenile tarpon, uh, the snook would probably be in those uh, creeks below that pond. You know, yeah. always have water in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a very similar life cycle. Yeah, that's, that's really intriguing because trying to get people on this part of the coast more information because snook have actually been caught. Matter of fact, I was just on the phone with Kerry Delpy. He is the Sabine Lake, which is on the, the northernmost bay in Texas where I live on the Louisiana border ecosystem program leader they've caught some in their sampling over the years here a guy caught a seven pounder a couple of years ago in this area never heard of snook here um in the last 30 years so interesting to see these things you know maybe migrating more but could uh, let's say we have these patterns that are getting more severe arctic blasts like this could this push those fish back and also could it have any kind of long-term impact on perhaps tarpon well it'll it'll we would expect to have um, less predictable, a severe event like this mm-hmm. um, because of climate change. And as snook and other species expand their ranges northward, uh, for example, there are snook on the eastern Gulf of Mexico and Florida all the way up at, near the Homosasso River. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're not just migrants, they're residents. They're actually spawning and they're wow. finding juveniles mm-hmm. up there. Um, those northern populations will um, definitely be hit by these types of events, push them back down south, you know, have some fish kills, and then um, they'll continue that um, sporadic yeah, northern range expansion for sure. Mm-hmm. So I would expect that on the Texas Gulf Coast, you'll start to have uh, eventually resident populations over time that'll be not migrants per se, but um, eventually established populations. Mm-hmm. But the... Um, the sustainability of those populations will be in large part um, related to these weather events. Yeah. So you'll, it's kind of like uh, you're seeing already with the black mangroves. You'll see periods where there's really good growth and then there's some dieback from these cold events and then um, they kind of start the process over again. For tarpon, um, you know, it's, it's interesting you talked before about you know, the element of time. You know, tarpon, don't, they don't get 
sexually mature till they're say seven to twelve years old, mm-hmm. when they're in the the fishery that we think of, you know, fifty pounds or bigger. So if the juveniles that got um, killed by this cold event, we w- won't know how they're affecting the adult population for another you know, four, five, six years. Wow, very similar um, to sharks in terms of uh, age class. Then, uh, yeah, they're uh, if they're slow growing and late to mature, like mm-hmm. tarpon and sharks are, mm-hmm. it takes a lot longer for them to recover from any event, whether it's something like this mm-hmm. or you know, over harvest, that type of thing. Yeah. yeah. So it's a conservation is a, is a, Hey, I have to have a long-term view. <laughs> yeah. That's very interesting because you can look at, uh, you know, you can have in certain great conditions, speckled trout, you know, spawning almost first year, second year, uh, you know, we've, we've all kind of crazy stuff like that. But you're looking at a fish; it's nine, ten years old. Whole lot uh, of difference in management of that fish, and looking at the long term and things like that. And uh, but it's a fascinating look. I mean, it's a it's an elusive fish. It's an incredible fish, and and these are things that we dream of going out and catching and pursuing. So it's great to have information looking at this, and also. From a conservation perspective, Aaron, uh, what do you think this freeze can tell us on how we should treat our resources? Um, better, in a word. Yeah. <laughs> um, and again, you know, using the time element, we are experiencing now the um, the results of how habitats and, and climate and fisheries were managed. You know, in many cases, decades ago. Mm-hmm. And so what we're doing now will be affecting those who come after us for, for decades as well. Mm-hmm. And it's also important to realize that a lot of the actions, good or bad, on habitat or climate now uh, won't necessarily be realized immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's a, there's a, I would call in science a lag or a delay in um, seeing the effects of, of those management measures. So we can't expect to do something now and necessarily see the effects next year. Sure. It's doing things now and seeing the effects five and, and 10 years away. So from a scientific perspective, uh, the scary thing um, for many of us is the increasing rate of change we're seeing. Um, rather than being kind of a slow slog, we're starting to see a much more rapid um, impact. Well, people want more information on the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Where can they go? Uh, BTT.org or BonefishTarponTrust.org is our website. Um, and from there, you can also get to our Instagram and Facebook social media. And everything on there from uh, scientific research, project summaries, to um, catch and release fishing techniques, um, to membership. It's all there. All right. Well, we appreciate your time. Thanks. Maybe we'll have you back on one day and talk about uh, – water transfer inner basin water transfer and freshwater flows because that's something that's not only the horizon in texas it's here yeah i'd be happy to because we're having the same issues in florida i just had a call about that last week <laughs> yeah, well, we'll talk about both uh, ends of the coast and the gulf coast and what the implications are in another uh, episode we appreciate it, aaron thank you for sure you've been listening to higher calling gulf coast with award-winning wildlife journalist and conservationist, Chester Moore. Email him at chester at chestermoore.com. Check out his wildlife writings at highercalling.net and find him at thechestermoore on Instagram.